Uh, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Last week we talked about one of our greatest resources. What is that? What is our greatest, one of the greatest resources we have? God's word. Like this is a gift from him. These are literally God's words that were spoken through man, given to us. It is the source of truth that we have. And as we read in 2 Peter 1 last week, it contains precious and very great promises. And God's word answers one of life's most important questions. Questions are a good thing for us to ask, are they not? They help us to open our minds and lead us to a place where we can think deeply about important things. Asking questions is also a sign of humility. It's an expression, the fact that we don't have it all together. Look to your neighbor next to you and say, hey, you don't have it all together. <laughs> and respond by saying, I don't have it all together. Questions keep us from laziness. They keep us on the tip of our toes. They lead us to study because we seek after the answer of the question that we ask. And as you think about our lives, what do you think the most important questions we can ask are? And with these questions comes the greatest significance of how exactly we answer those questions. And the, the question that we are going to be pondering this morning may be the most important. That is this. Who is God? Who is God. Understanding who God is according to scripture, not our own imaginations, will transform the way that we live. The importance of understanding the truth of who God is cannot be overstated. And so this morning, let's jump into the text as we uncover and think about who exactly this great God is. Follow with me in Acts 17 as I start reading in verse 16. Now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athen Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed all along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, I can't think of many more important questions than the question of who are you? And Father, when we come to the grips, come to grasp the reality of who you are, Lord, it, it holds us accountable to some things. So God, this morning I pray that, that we would look deeply into the question of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would prick our consciences to consider how amazing you are. And Lord, in light of who you are, what does that mean and how we should now live? What does that mean for how we should respond in light of who you are? So God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see what we need to see. Open our hearts to perceive what it is that we need to perceive. God, we need you this morning. We are desperate for you, God. Give us the gift of illumination. Lord, allow us to leave changed. Allow us, for those who are have already genuinely repented of our sin and placed your faith in you, I pray that we would grow with a deeper awareness of who you are. And Father, perhaps there are some here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. My prayer for them is that you would open their eyes, that they may behold these wondrous truths of who you are. God, that, might grant, that you might grant them repentance because of it. And that you might transform their lives and rescue them from their sin this morning. So God, we need you. Please come in power now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here Paul is still on his second missionary trip, and we find him here in the big city of Athens. It is the capital of Greece and is one of the greatest cities in the history of the world. In fact, this ancient city was so influential that it has impacted our culture today. Everybody knows when you say Athens, you think Greece. Everybody knows that for the most part. There are great philosophers that we know that came from Greece. Perhaps you've heard of 
Socrates and Plato. They lived in Athens. Perhaps you've heard of Aristotle who moved to Athens. And it's a fascinating thought this week as I thought about that and pondered that. Those names are far more likely in many people's minds than Jesus Christ. And yet these men lived 400 years before Jesus. And all the documents that we have about Jesus are far more accurate even than those of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And yet the world values what they have to say over what Jesus said. Athens had some great warriors. Perhaps you've heard of Alexander the Great who conquered the known world 300 years before Christ. And that is why the common language in the time was Greek. And that's why the New Testament was written in Greek as well. And, of course, Athens was home of a famous group of games. Anybody know what that's called? The Olympics. And not only that, it was known for its amazing architecture. The Parthenon was built 500 years before Jesus, yet it is still one of the most famous buildings in the world. So this was a massive city. This is the setting that Paul finds himself in this morning. And very quickly we see that it is a very religious city. And as we once again see, Paul was in his favorite place, hanging out in the synagogues, but also the marketplace. And there are two groups of people mentioned here, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Let's just talk about those a minute to give an understanding of the background of what these people brought into these conversations that Paul was having. The, the Epicureans, for, for instance, they were people who believed there were gods out there, but they didn't believe that the gods really cared about what was going on on the earth. So... The gods are there, but they don't, they're not really paying attention to what's going on here. And they believe that death was the end of, of all. There was no afterlife. So when you spoke of the resurrection, this would, of course, throw them in a frenzy because they didn't believe these things to be true. Now, the Stoics, they believed that everything was God. The rocks, the trees, buildings. People, of course, we know of many gods that came from ancient time. For us, they're just, they're known as myths, right? Like we just kind of joke about Thor and, and different gods like that. But for them, this was, it was a real thing. But, but here's the reality. If everything is God, then really nothing is God. So these were two of the main philosophical schools in the day. And they didn't think too highly of Paul's teaching. In fact, we see here, look what they called him. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they called him a babbler. I actually like the CSB translation better. That's the Christian Standard Bible. It says that uh, he was an ignorant show-off. So basically, they looked at Paul, these, and, and with these religious activities, these religious words that he was using, and they were saying that Paul was taking a bunch of different things from different religions and throwing them together and making him his own. So they didn't really have a whole lot of respect of what they were saying, but yet there was still some intrigue, and they brought them to the Aeropagus. In other words, this was, this was like... The Supreme Court of Athens is who they brought them to. These are some very important people. I mean, when you think about this, 
Do you see God's hand in bringing Paul to these very influential people? I mean, this is incredible. Paul has been given the stage in front of these amazingly important people. And these leaders, they tee it up for him. I I love this. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Oh, that God would lead us to conversations like this. That we would be praying that the Lord would open up conversations so that we could share the good news of Jesus Christ. And and so the tea has been set for Paul to swing away. They were curious. Verse 21 goes on. We, we start to get an understanding of what these kind of people are, what these people are like. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Isn't that a fascinating thing? They were looking for some kind of new truth. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. The same thing still happens today. People are looking for a new truth. Can I just say this? If anybody comes to you and says, I have a new truth from you. God, got, God brought me a new truth. And it doesn't line up with scripture. You should reject it, reject it right away. God's word even says nothing shall be added to what I've already written. We have the completed scriptures. We don't need anything in addition to it. But these people were fascinated with new things. And so that's why they were curious and that's why they reached out to Paul. So the door is swung wide open. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to consider the whole passage. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit because there are some main ideas I want us to understand. Five facts about who God is. Here's fact number one. God cares for the lost. God cares for the lost. Back in verse 16, we see that Paul is waiting for his brothers Silas and Timothy to come meet him in Athens. And his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be here. Actually, again, like what CSB says, in in the ESV it says his spirit was provoked. In the CSB it says that he was deeply distressed. He was troubled at what he had saw. He saw all these idols of worship when he understood that you can't do that. You should have no other gods before me is what God said. And so he is troubled. And this is certainly something that every believer feels, right? We all feel this. We look at a world that is broken and it disturbs us. It troubles us. Our hearts are broken over it. Now we may not look out and see like idols made of stone and gold, But certainly we see idolatry everywhere. And what does it lead Paul to do? He went into the synagogue and he engaged with the people. He didn't run from it. He didn't go blog about how awful the world is on social media. He didn't go to the radio waves. He didn't just pray about it. He actually was so moved that he went to tell the people about the one true God. Paul was God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for him in advance that he should walk in him. 
in them. Paul was about the things of God, and God was the one that opened this door of ministry for Paul. God cares for the lost. I'm sad to say that I don't always respond to Paul like Paul did. When I see evil, the the first thing I think of is flee, to get away from those things. My first instinct is to protect. My first instinct is safety. I'm a guy who likes it safe. I don't like conflict. And so when people are in disagreement with where I stand on the things of God, it can lead me to a place where often I run rather than lean into the opportunity that God may presenting before me. But if God cares for the lost, then as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be willing to step into the hard places of the world. And that may mean our neighbor's yard. That may mean our coworker next to us. God sometimes calls us to step in a place of trouble because of those who need Jesus are in that place of trouble. Now hear me out. There are times where we need to protect ourselves and we need to protect our families. This is not about being foolish and just running into whatever trouble there is around us. Even we see here throughout Acts, there are times when they escaped. There are times when they took off. There are times when they fled. There are times for that. But there are also times when we need to lean in even when it means putting ourselves in very uncomfortable situations because people live in those uncomfortable situations. Generally speaking, we don't see the churches full of unbelievers. The unbelievers are out there. This is why it's so important for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ so that his spirit can provoke us, so that we are ready to take those steps like Paul. When we encounter evil, our first reaction isn't necessarily going to be to flee. It may mean, God, what would you have me speak into this situation? Even last night I was talking to somebody who would would have been a religious person but didn't see the need for church and didn't... I thought just being a good person was all that was needed. And it wasn't really the right time for me to lean into it. But I had prayed for conversations, and she knows I'm a pastor. Uh, Her kid plays on the same baseball teams that my kid plays on. And so now there's this opportunity for me that I want to be praying, God, open this door. Make me right with you. Keep me pursuing you so that my heart is ready when these opportunities come. God cares for the lost. Do you? Here's the second fact. God is the creator. God is the creator. We see this several places here in the passage. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. This is the truth that we find in the very beginning of the Bible. You open up to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the designer of the world that we live in. Everything we have was given to us by God. There's also another critical piece to God being the creator of everything. What does a creator get to decide about his creation? He gets to decide what his creation is for. He determines the purpose 
of everything that he creates. What am I wearing here? Sweater, right? Sweatshirt, whatever you want to call it. What is it used for? Keep me warm. It's to cover, cover us. Now, and if I, if I decide to use it as a rag, how long is that going to last me? One or two tries, right? If I t- choose to use this as a rag tomorrow, does that change the purpose of what this was created for? Okay, we have this up here. What is this? A guitar. What's it for? Create music. You use it for any other purpose, it, it's no longer useful. It, it, nothing outside of the purpose of something made for is as good as when it's doing what it is made for. The same thing is true for us. What are we created for? We're created to glorify God. We were created to live our lives for the glory of another. We were, cre- we were created so that God is lifted up in everything that we do. Whenever we live outside of our purpose, how does life go for us? When we start living for the glory of ourselves, how does life go for us? Everybody gets in the way when we become the king of our own thrones. But when we put Christ on the throne, no one can get in the way except ourselves. We were created for a purpose and this is so important for us to understand. You, you have to come. Everybody needs to come and answer the question, is there a creator? And if so, what was I created for? And when we live in that purpose, that's when life goes best for us. But when we live outside that, that invites chaos. God is the creator. And because of this, there are are major implications for our lives. And the next fact actually answers the question, why were we created? Here it is, number three. God made us to worship. God made us to worship. We see this interaction between Paul and those philosophers and leaders in verse 16. We see that he noticed the idols. And so because of that, he tells them about Jesus in verse 22. Look at there again. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The people had it in them to worship. They were, it's a, it's a sliver of understanding why God made us. Why were they worshiping? They were worshiping because God made them to worship. The problem was, is their, what they were worshiping was not who they were created to worship or what they were created to worship. Often, if you look deeply into the things of the world, even in the sinfulness of it, out of that, you can, you can see, like, the, we're all made in the image of God. And we were made to worship. You see that closely as you look at the people of Athens, this glimmer of understanding of why they were created. And I think that's why Paul was so drawn to them. He, he could see, man, yes, we're supposed to worship, but you've got it all wrong. And when they weren't living for the purpose that they were created for, 
it made life dissatisfying. And it led to disaster. It always leads to disaster when we live outside of our purpose. Our purpose to worship. We were created to glorify God. God is the one who declared that for us. Verse 26. Look at that again. And he made from, ev- from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. You see it there? What were they created for? They were created to seek God. That's worship. We're created to seek after God. That's why we worship. We have this longing for something outside of ourselves. We need something to give all of our attention to, all of our glory to. We were created for that. Verse 27 continues, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We were created by God. We were created for God so that we would find him. And he's not far from us. Isn't that amazing? Through Christ, we have access to the Father The problem with the Athenians and all mankind for that matter is that we distort worship. So, I mean, it leads us to ask the question because I don't have any idols in my house. I don't have a Buddha. I don't have whatever, a golden calf that I worship to. So what does it mean for us today to have idols? What does idolatry look like in our time Certainly the idol of sexuality is quite the hot topic. People are trying to change definitions and basically trying to eliminate some words altogether. Once, what was once condemned even in our culture is not only appreciated, but it's approved. And it's come to the place where they are demanding all of us to bow down and approve it ourselves. It's not about tolerance anymore. It's about approval that we approve it. Maybe there could come a day where they would shut our doors as a church because we choose to stand on the foundation of God's word rather than what man says. The idol of materialism is everywhere. The way we advertise and entice people, trying to convince them that they need something. You know, it's been a long time since I've watched infomercials. Any infomercial fans out there? Man, I love them. There are some times where I'm like, I have to have that. I look at Nikki, I'm Nikki. All I have to, all you got to do is set it and forget it. Like, this is amazing. We need this in our life. We live in a culture that loves stuff. And stuff is killing us. More and more and more and it's never enough. Another idol, a big one for me, is entertainment. Never have we had so much technology literally at the tips of our fingers. The opportunities are endless for us to grow in knowledge, and yet this has become the greatest distraction ever invented, I'm convinced of. And we can spend hours and hours and hours on social media, streaming services, the TV, YouTube videos, TikTok, We can find ourselves waking up in the morning and the first thing we do is turn to our phones. I find it in myself. 
and it distracts me. And I get to the point where now it's time to get the kids up and where I could have spent 30 minutes to an hour pursuing the Lord. I've wasted it on stuff that leads me to a place of despair. I just end up being depressed afterwards anyway. Entertainment is killing us. And we could go on and on and on with idols that we have. The idol of food. Health. You see, it's not just the idolatry of eating too much. We can actually be so obsessed with health that it becomes an idol. We can be so consumed by what we put in our mouths and working out to the place that, that we start judging and condemning everybody around us. Exercise can be an idol. Sports, achievement, our families can be idols. We, we want our spouses to be our savior. And when we find out they're not, sometimes that leads us to walk away because I need somebody to be my savior. And our spouses are terrible saviors. If you're married, tell your spouse, I'm a terrible savior. Do that now. Nikki, I'm a terrible savior. Our kids can be idols. We live in a world that is sur- it, the, the center of our homes has become our children. And can I just say, parents, that is dangerous. The last thing our kids need is to think that they are number one. The most important relationship in your home, outside of your personal relationship with God, is your relationship with your spouse if you're married. There's nothing greater than that. But Jesus has to be the center of your home. And if we make our kids the center and we surround all of our lives, we miss church because we have all these activities that we want our kids to be part of, continually missing all the time, we are going to drag our kids away from the Lord without even realizing it. Jesus must be at the center. Our kids are terrible saviors as well. Friends, dating. Really, idolatry all comes to the idol of self. All boils down to that. The truth is, we, don't, we may not have idols made out of stone and gold in our homes, but we can make idolatry just about out of anything. And we have to remember why. It's because, first of all, we were created to worship. We can understand that by looking at it. The problem for the Athenians wasn't worship. The problem was who they were worshiping or what they were worshiping. We were created to worship. But our worship must be turned to the God who created us. He is the only one that is worthy of our praise. He is the one that will lead us and direct us because he is the creator. If, how many of you own computers at home? When you're trying to figure out how this computer is supposed to work, who do you turn to? You start going to the ones who know best, right? The ones who have created the technology. They're the ones who understand how it works. So if we want to understand how we are supposed to work, this is why this is so valuable for us. This is why this is our greatest resource. This helps us understand who created us. And why we're created. Oh, the importance of being in God's word. We were made to worship. But is it the God of the Bible that you are worshiping? Are you living for his glory alone? Or are you living for the glory of yourself? When we... Live outside of the purposes we were created for. Life will always come up empty. I see this all the time with athletes who've won multiple championships. They're like, 
you ask how, like, what's your response? And like, is that it? Like, is that really all? That ha- like, fle- the fleetings fail. They, they pass on. The one thing that has been forever in my life that is, once Jesus rescued me, the one great thing that has always brought great joy is when I am pursuing the ways of the Lord. We were created, we were made to worship. Truth number four is this. God is sovereign over all. Really, it's because God is creator that he gets to call the shots. He decides our purpose, and therefore, he is sovereign. Once again, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. We see there, Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. To be Lord means to be sovereign over heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's master of it all. He doesn't live in shrines made out of man. He's not dependent on us. God doesn't need us. If anybody ever says to you God needs you, no he doesn't. Who are we that we could serve the creator? As if he needs it. He allows us to participate in that. But he doesn't need our service. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This will, this will frustrate some people. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that? He determines where you live. Where you live today, guess what? That was God's plan. The time of, of the earth's creation that you live in, he's determined. He knows the numbers of your days. Here's the thing. This is what, what gets people riled up and fired up about this is when we think God is an unloving, angry God. Is God angry? I would say, yeah. <laughs> he's angry at sin. He was so angry that he crucified his own son for us. Actually, the scriptures in the Old Testament say that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you've been reading through the scriptures, have you noticed how terrible his people are? Have you noticed how over and over and over again, most of the time, these kings that ruled Israel, like he did not follow the ways of David. (laughs) He, he, He was evil in his leadership. And God sends them away into captivity, but then He always, over and over and over again, he was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We can trust ourselves in the hands of a sovereign God because he's good. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. None of us deserves to have breath this morning. Look at verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. In Christ, in God, we are alive. We move. We have our being. That's from God. We are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. How are we alive today? How do we have the things that we have? What is it that gives us breath? It's from our sovereign God who reigns supreme in all the earth. Do you understand 
that God is sovereign. Do you understand that even in his sovereignty, he's a good, merciful God? You see, we can look at this and feel like, like Christianity is so restraining. But the reason why God tells us not to participate in things, because he knows that when we do, it actually leads us astray. Why does he call for us to stay committed to, for in marriage to one man, one woman for one lifetime? Those of you who have been divorced, I'm not going to ask you to say anything, but how, how, how is divorce? Would, would you want everybody to be a part of it? No, you've tasted and seen. Because some of you have, have been on the, the, the receiving end of it. You, you didn't want any part of that. God calls us to live for the glory of him. And when we live that way, God, life goes so much better for us. God is sovereign over all. This leads us to the last fact. God is coming to judge the world. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is why it matters how we answer the question, who is God? The facts that we've talked about truly matter. God made us to glorify him. And none of us started out living for his glory. And so this is why God commands all people everywhere to repent. Perhaps you are someone who thinks that everyone in the end gets saved. There's a, there's a thing called universalism that, well, in the end it all gets worked out and everybody gets saved. If that's true, then why would Paul call people to repent? Why, do, why wouldn't he just say, hey, do whatever you want to because you know what? In the end you're going to be saved anyway. It makes no sense to, to, to call yourself a believer and think that everybody would, would be saved if we're being called to repent here. Why is there a need to repent if we're all saved? And why would there be a need to repent if when we die, that's it? Like, that doesn't make sense either. Because why not live the way you want to, and then you die and it's over anyway. It doesn't really matter. There's an eternity that awaits. That's why it matters. You might think that you are good enough to make it into heaven. But repentance has nothing to do with being good enough. We aren't good enough, which is the very reason why everyone has to repent. If we could somehow save ourselves by doing good works, there would be no good to repent. There would be no reason to. All you got to do is do enough good stuff if somehow good works would save us. But no, we are called to repent. Repent means you're walking in one direction. You are living for your own glory. Repentance means you understand that you are you are living for yourself, not for the glory of God. And you stop living that way and you repent and you turn away from that and you start living for the glory of God. You start pursuing the Lord. You, start, you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't be good enough. We have to repent. It's good. That's, that, that should be such good news to you. It should not be something that, oh, i got to repent. I'm a sinner. Listen. Would you rather have the weight of having to repent or the weight of having to be good enough? Because then what determines that you have done enough good things in order for God to save you? 
And having done that, what if you have a trip up? How much trip up does it take for you to fall then from the standard that you have of being good enough? What a, what a depressing way to live. What a hopeless way to live. It's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 31 says that God will judge the world in righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the grave three days later, proving he is who he says he was. He is truly righteous. Each and every one of us will die physically unless the Lord returns. And either way, each and every one of us will face the judgment seat of Christ. And only those who are righteous will spend eternity in glory. And as I've already talked about, there's no way you and I can be righteous in and of ourselves. There's no way that we can be good enough in order to earn God's favor. Righteousness only comes from those who bear the righteousness of Christ through the repentance of sin and placing their faith in Christ. Here's the crazy thing about God and his grace and his mercy. We bring our sin to the Lord. He's just asking us to acknowledge, to repent of it. And in return, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means when it talks about here. We're going to be judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So either the righteousness of Jesus Christ would have been placed on us upon our salvation or God will look at us at the end and if we have not repented of our sin and placed our faith with us, we will have no righteousness to stand on and therefore we will be declared condemned. Every one of us will face that judgment seat. Have you repented of your sins? Has God opened your eyes to see the idolatry in your own heart? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? Judgment day is coming. And how we answer the question, who is God, matters. God cares for the lost. God is the creator. God made us to worship. God is sovereign over all. God is coming to judge the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how gracious and merciful you are. Lord, it can be easy to look at these things and, and perceive you as this angry God who's up there ready to strike us. And that's not true at all. All throughout scripture we see you're merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You don't even ask us and call for us to be righteous in order to be saved. Rather, it's the righteousness of Christ that saves us through our admittance that we aren't righteous. Through our turning away from that life and living our lives differently, Lord. We, we have nothing to offer you. <laughs> Even what it says here. What does man have to give you? You don't dwell in places that man builds. You are so greater, so far greater than us. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. I pray for those, even right now, who are battling and wrestling in their minds about is there a God? What are you like? Lord, if there have been things that they've been told or thought in their own thinking, God, would you help them to realize that 
Lord, we are twisted in our thinking. All of us can get twisted. We need something, truth to look to. And God, your word has stood the test of time. And it has proved true for thousands of years. And Lord, it is only in your word that I find life. It's only in your word that I find satisfaction. So God, let us be students of your word before we decide to define who you are. Lord, would you grant repentance to those who have not done so yet today? And God, for those of us who have, I pray that you would encourage us, remind us all the more of your greatness, Lord. I pray that we would be so in tune with you that we would be like Paul who cared for the lost and saw the idolatry and didn't just run to safety but actually went into the battle because he cared for those who desperately needed you. God, give us hearts for that. Help us to look at those as opportunities, not as obstacles. Give us wisdom to be able to speak into those things, Lord. And give us trust in your spirit, Lord, that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. And if that's true, God, you'll give us the words to say in those moments. God, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us from our sin. I thank you that for those who have repented, placed their faith in you, the judgment is not a scary thing. When the judgment comes, we know that we will be declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you a few things that you can chew on this week if you want to go a little bit further and think a little bit more on these things. Here are some action steps. Memorize Jeremiah 10, verses 12 and 13. Um, Let me just read it for you. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mists rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is just talking about the greatness of who God is. I encourage you to spend some time reading Psalm 145. Again, that just speaks of the greatness of God. Like, That's going to help us turn to the Lord when we understand of who he truly is. And we find who he is through his word. Third thing there, identify your idols. I encourage you to spend some time this week pursuing the Lord. Maybe you don't, maybe you're not, maybe this whole idea of idolatry is something that's new to you. And you just need to take the time pursuing the Lord, asking him to reveal, Lord, what am I putting before you? What am I pursuing that leads me, leaves me empty? Some of the anxiety and the despair that you might be feeling in your life, you're feeling in your life, may be a sign that you're struggling with some idolatry, perhaps. So I encourage you to spend some time identifying your idols. And then I encourage you, Just even as I mentioned, memorizing Jeremiah 10, reading Psalm 144, do a study on God, on who God is. Get to know your father, and you will find out that he is not this angry God who's ready to strike us every time we screw up. He's actually quite merciful and gracious.